This episode and the following message are brought to you by Bully Free Zone. Back from their winter hiatus gathering napkins from every Cracker Barrel and Bob Evans in the continental United States, Angela Juarez and Martin Pohl present another hard-hitting, controversial zine full of words and pictures and other things that spill out of their brains and make them laugh. These words and pictures will then make you laugh because Angela and Martin are funny people. Bully Free Zone is free, but they do accept donations, so give them some money. Come on, don't be a fucking idiot. To get your copy, sign up for the mailing list at bully-freezone.com. That's bully-freezone.com. Slash is not a word in this case, it's the uh, sign. So that's bully-freezone.com. Okay, cool. Previously on Bug Spray. Hmm, I'm not really sure how to do this. If you haven't listened to episode 5, the one before this one, maybe listen to that first. I don't know what else to tell you. Or don't. But this is a continuation of that story, and it does, you know, reference stuff that happened in that one. Episode 5. Yeah, okay. Portions of this podcast have been redacted. You're welcome. Robin Thurgood sat outside a dark house in a dark white van that had stove pipe removal services stenciled in large, sloppy letters on its side. If he had been more observant, or thoughtful, he might have wondered why it was that all the stove pipes that his uncle removed were removed in the dead of night. But he wasn't observant. Or at least not about things like that. What he had observed was that he didn't actually know what a stovepipe was, except for Abe Lincoln's hat, but he was pretty sure that the use of stovepipe in that sense was probably in reference to something else. For instance, a pipe that runs to or from a stove. Robin just kind of took stoves for granted and knew very little about how they actually worked, but presumed that, you know, there were probably pipes going to them. That's probably what a stovepipe was. But why did they need to be removed so urgently? And what was wrong with them? No one had bothered to explain any of this to Robin, and he wasn't about to ask either. At exactly 1.32 a.m., his uncle, Hector, and a man he knew only by the name Dr. Rabbit, emerged from the house carrying a black canvas bag in between them. The bag seemed to be heavy, But what was in the bag? A body? Yet again the thought occurred to Robin, but he dismissed it quickly. His uncle removed stovepipes, because that was what the side of the van said. So that must be a stovepipe. So stovepipes looked like dead people. Robin had seen dead people on TV. The nurse at the camp he went to was a self-proclaimed wolfie, which, for those who don't know, is what the members of the unofficial Dick Wolf fan club call themselves. The stovepipe was put in the back of the van, and the doors were closed. And the two men, perspiring heavily in the humid June air, joined Robin in the van's cab. 
Dr. Rabbit congratulated Uncle Hector for working, quote, without error, which seemed like a big deal. And although Robin also did not understand why it was such a big deal, he nodded and smiled along and said, Congrats, Uncle. This was Robin's go-to move, because although the act of nodding and smiling along had forced him to fill in the blanks on many things in life, he was also confided in more as a result. Or so he liked to believe. And he was happy that his uncle had gotten this job, because, for his uncle, jobs seemed rather hard to come by. And he was also happy for this week between the end of school and the beginning of summer camp. A week that otherwise would have been spent playing with office supplies next to his mother's desk at a large, unnamed telecommunications company. But then she had had to go out of town. For business. And so she asked Uncle Hector to watch him. Which was nice. Because he liked spending time with his uncle. As he sat in between his uncle and Dr. Rabbit, zooming down the deserted highway on the way to the nondescript beige building that was surrounded by three layers of barbed wire, where the stovepipes were dropped off, he noted that, for the first time in his relatively short existence, he felt happy. Which is to say that he had felt happy before, but he had never taken note of it. And that's when the stovepipe started to moan. Anyway, this is Bug Spray. At some point in the early 2000s, someone at the Department of Defense realized that facial recognition software was going to be a problem. I here use the word someone because while the vast majority of documentation used in the reporting of this story is a matter of public record, the identity of the person who had said realization, as well as the date of said realization, is, for whatever reason, still classified. And this is where I tell you that 9-11 had already happened, which is relevant, because as a reaction, the Department of Defense had to come up with a set of words to help guide its leadership in ensuring that another 9-11 type event didn't happen again. The first word was safety, the second word was America, and the third word was anticipate, which was, like most of the words in the list, largely unhelpful. The word anticipate did help in ensuring that Brigadier General Bob Thundercat Jones's report on facial recognition software was not only seen, but approved by DOD leadership. It was to be a full-fledged investigation into the methods that could defeat the problems that facial recognition software had not yet caused. Or so the report, entitled Anticipating Anticipated Problems, led the reader to believe. But that's not at all what it was about. 
What it was about was that Brigadier General Bob Thundercat Jones and several of his friends wanted a way to have casual, sexual relations with members of their staffs, without the danger of having said casual, sexual relations become a problem down the road. You know, if any of them decided they wanted to be senators someday. Evidently, secretive casual sex is what a lot of DOD decision-making centers around. But you didn't hear that from me. In any case, the investigation was a complete and utter failure. And as such, Brigadier General Bob Thundercat Jones immediately tried to classify the entire thing. Which makes that old saying, in government work, failures don't happen, make a whole lot more sense. All the full-fledged investigation I've been able to come up with was to put tape over your webcam, which was a stupid recommendation as this was the early 2000s, and so any webcam that you bought at CompUSA could easily be removed. Problem solved. As to why the DoD dealt exclusively with CompUSA, well, according to one source, it, quote, had USA in its name. So, you know, USA. Right? And then nothing happened for a long time. And the stacks of paper generated during the full-fledged investigation had stacks of even more paper put on top of them so that everybody forgot about them because there was a war going on. What if, thought Brigadier General Bob Thundercat Jones, as he attempted to slip into one of his wife's evening gowns, that she was unaware he was borrowing for a night out with the boys, there was a topical solution. He smiled. This was a good idea. But he had forgotten what the problem was. Later that evening, he remembered. A solution. A solution that was topical. That you could put on your face. That Monday, at a meeting attended by many of the boys from the previous weekend, he pitched the idea, which was just that, an idea. But the boys loved it, and immediately applauded his ingenuity for coming up with such an ingenious solution to a problem that they insisted they remembered having had. And as Brigadier General Bob Thundercat Jones likes to think of himself as an agreeable team player, he went along with the ruse, and promised to have the method available by year's end. Everyone was pleased, especially Brigadier General Bob Thundercat Jones, who went down to the Don Lennon Memorial Science Laboratory and informed all the GS9s there that they were to focus all their energy on fabricating a topical solution that would fix the problem at hand, which was facial recognition software. Well, that wasn't really the problem, which confused the GS9s. GS9s are easily confusable, until one of them remembered that sex really dictates everything, and then they pretty quickly figured out exactly what the problem really was, and got to work. Several months later, the exact time is yet another inexplicably still classified piece of data, all work in the Don Lemon Memorial Science Laboratory ground to a halt, because they had figured out a solution. Well, a solution of sorts, which is to say that it fixed the problems laid out in Brigadier General Bob Thundercat Jones's report, anticipating anticipated problems. But none of the problems anticipated were actual problems that the General or any of the rest of the boys had any interest in fixing. When it came down to it, the GS9 scientists concluded, who were they to meddle in the contradiction-rich 
ethics and morality-based question as to whether or not a high-ranking member of the military should be able to have consequenceless sex with a subordinate, let alone if it was their place to help in its consequencelessness. So instead, they focused on the problem that was much more straightforward, facial recognition software. And the solution was simple, change the face. On its own, this solution was elegant because it was permanent. So you didn't really have to worry too much about software updates, which were a problem. But you were also physically altering a person's face, which, due to annoying ethics rules, was classified as, quote, a big deal. And so four government committees got involved, which is why further testing was done, which is when they discovered that, along with webcams, around 90% of adults no longer recognized affected faces as those of humans, which was probably a bad thing. Or at the very least, not ideal. Because it was almost as if they no longer existed. This isn't what Brigadier General Bob Thundercat Jones or any of the rest of the boys were hoping for. And as a result, the whole project was again shuttered, and all evidence buried under even more stacks of non-related paper. Several GS9 scientists were let go for promising results that they were just not able to deliver on. And Brigadier General Bob Thundercat Jones would later tell his biographer that the GS9 scientist's behavior was, quote, disappointing. Then two things happened almost simultaneously. The United States Marshals Service found out about the topical solution, and Senator Robert Gelman, Democrat from Arizona, included in a bill that all rights to the solution would be sold to the Richmond, Virginia-based cosmetics company FaceCorp for a nominal fee. Not included in the bill was the fact that FaceCorp was his brother's company. The bill passed, and pretty soon FaceCorp was selling vats of the topical solution to the United States Marshals Service as a means to protect witnesses. Yes, the Witness Protection Program. For it seemed that, depending on how one chose to interpret the law, existence was not a requirement of delivering testimony. A person didn't need to exist in order to implicate a perp that everyone knew was guilty in the first place. Most of the time, it was just really a formality. Eyes crossed and T's dotted. You know. An indefinite gag order was placed on FaceCorp by the United States Marshals Service so that FaceCorp could not talk about the topical solution, which it named Wrinkle Zap. And for several years, things went very well. FaceCorp produced two batches of Wrinkle Zap. One brought about lasting physical damage to the skeletal structure of any flesh it came into contact with, and the other was 2% benzoyl peroxide and 98% useless. Senator Robert Gelman's brother was pleased, and Senator Robert Gelman was re-elected and given a committee chairmanship. When everything goes well, people relax, because everything is going well, and so nothing's probably going to go wrong. In the summer of 2010, Senator Robert Gelman's brother read a Forbes article entitled the age of the intern, and thought, hey, maybe we should get some of those. Which is how an intern was put in charge of the entire labeling division of the company. Which is how, one day, the labels got mixed up. Which is how the skeletal structure of an indeterminate number of women 
and several men were irreversibly changed when they applied a certain topical solution that they bought at a drugstore, whose name either stands for Consumer Value Store or Convenience Value and Service, depending on which set of facts you choose to believe. Diane woke up and started to moan. She was eventually removed from the body bag and tied to a chair. A single light swayed slightly over her head, darkness extending endlessly in every direction. Her captors had clearly seen a few hostage movies, and as the saying goes, write what you know. Out of the darkness, a man emerged. He was wearing a white lab coat that said Dr. Theodore Rabbit on it. He pulled up a chair, sat down, and looked at her. Mm-hmm, he said. We're doing you a huge favor, ma'am. You could be one of those sorry saps that spends the rest of their life wondering why no one talks to them, why no one notices them. That could be you right now. But it's not, because you're here. What I'm saying is, you should be grateful. We should all try to be a little more grateful. Diane didn't understand. It felt like what this man was saying should be making sense. Like he had a point. Like she almost had it. Like she almost... I don't understand, she said. And so, with minimal fanfare, Dr. Theodore Rabbit, who was ever grateful that his last name was not Bear, explained to her what I have told you, of the intricacies and frustrations that come with bureaucracy. That said bureaucracy was going to do its best to right the wrongs it had inflicted upon her, that it was prepared to compensate her to the tune of $37,000, which, with the help of computer models, the bureaucracy as a whole had concluded was what her existence had been worth that the bureaucracy would move her and all her belongings to the town of Greenbelt, Maryland, a town that had long ago been designed for those for whom existence is a continuing struggle. I don't need to tell you this, said Dr. Rabbit, but I feel it's important for you to know that everyone regrets what happened to you. They're all real broken up about it. This wasn't supposed to happen. If it's any consolation, the intern that caused this mess won't be getting any college credit and we're going to do our best to fuck up the rest of his life. But things happen in life, as I'm sure you are aware, and then you just sort of have to deal with them. Greenbelt's a nice little town. I think you'll feel right at home there. It has a movie theater and a swimming pool, and some sort of natural man-made body of water that you can walk around or go up to and sit by. I think you'll like it there. It's a nice place. Or, you know, you could just fucking stay here. It was presented as a choice. But there was really no choice to it. And Greenbelt is a nice place to live. Well... You can really learn to like any place you're living. You won't believe the results, said Sean Goldberg, who, evidently in the short period of time that he had been absent from Diane's life, had added actor, colon, loveboat, to his lower third descriptor. Look at all this cat hair. Good for him, thought Diane. 
She was sitting in her living room. Her house was square and utilitarian, but she at least had a house. And for that she was grateful. Because housing in Greenbelt was filling up fast. Some of the old-timers Diane talked to told her that, until very recently, there had been blocks upon blocks of empty, square houses waiting to not be occupied. But in the span of about a month, all of those houses had been filled. There were now tents sprouting up underneath overpasses, tents with nobody in them, which everyone agreed was odd. Well, they would have agreed on the oddness of the situation had they talked about it. But they didn't. Because life goes on, no matter what happens. The world never really ends. And, Diane thought, although she would never step foot in the Greenbelt Municipal Swimming Pool, it's at least nice to be able to check out a paddleboard. Bug Spray is written, directed, and produced by Scott Gooden, with music by B. Norman Clatcher. Special thanks to Norris Gunshin for getting this thing in front of big-time Hollywood radio producers that change lives and make dreams come true. This is, of course, a work of fiction. Names, characters, businesses, places, events, and incidents are either the products of the author's imagination or used in a fictitious manner, or possibly both. Visit BugSprayPod.com for more information. And subscribe to BugSpray on iTunes. And if you are so inclined, follow the Twitter handle, which is at BugSprayPod. Literally all it's supposed to do is let you know when there's a new episode. It's 2017. No fear. Resist. Fight back. But fucking do something. Don't just talk about it. <laughs>